Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and your Week in Sports Cars listener Q&A show. I'm Marshall Pruitt. Big thanks to the Ricky Taylor who subbed for me the most recent episode. Graham Goodwin, you are my man. You are my co-host, co-pilot. You're, you're the couple valves within my heart. Uh, also happen to be the editor of DailySportsCar.com. If you don't go there for your sports car news, boo on you. Uh, also, a man whose face, voice, and backside is demonstrated frequently the on uh, European Le Mans Series, Asian Le Mans Series, uh, World Endurance Championship, anything with a series at the end or a championship behind it, and endurance racing and sporty cars. <laughs> Graham Goodwin is the official talker of words into those things. I hand the floor, the microphone, and everything to you, my brother, <laughs> after saying a huge thank you to Cooper Tires, the Justice Brothers, and TorontoMotorsports.com. Uh, yeah, well, welcome back, mate. Um, and uh, it was great fun with Ricky Taylor. I think it was the real Ricky Taylor. It could have been someone doing a really good impression. I'm jealous. But he was jealous. he was dissing his brother just enough to to believe that it definitely was Ricky Taylor. He's but, carried uh, his brother for a long time. Yeah, finally you know, acknowledge that like a millstone, you know. Damn me! But there you go. Uh, a a a very very worthy uh, substitute for you uh, for last week's show. This week, well, it's been another very busy week. We're squeezing this show in before I hightail it to Heathrow Airport to make my way to. Sebring for the prologue test ahead of the FR World Endurance Championship uh, opening round next week. Yes, Super Sebring is back uh, for the first time. Two years of delay for that one. It's, uh, you, know, you can always tell when there's been a delay but when your, your merchandise cap is beginning to look a little less um, shiny and new. And it is one of my favourites. Uh, but, yeah, we'll be on site uh, on Friday morning. Uh, but uh, in particular this week... Well, news of a – where do you start with Sad. it? I mean, yeah, let, let, let's – You can't really avoid being affected by the big story that's nothing to do with sports car racing, uh, and that is, of course, the just tragic, terrible events that are unfolding in Ukraine. And that, of course, has had a knock-on effect on our world, uh, and by that I mean in totality, but also – in microcosm uh, with the sport MP, but uh, just a few words to start with. I mean, if we have got listeners that part of the world, our thoughts, our hearts are with you right now. Um, absolutely terrible scenes coming out of, you know, a country that's not that far away from where I'm sitting right now. Um, but that situation has had knock-on effects, and they're what we're here to talk about, I guess. Tell me, uh, um, do- tell us about that, Graham. So we have been expecting. The yeah. Lamar entry list. Since last Monday. Yes. And so with the uh, invasion of Ukraine, Russia in a global hot seat, but also a sporting hot seat. Yeah. Tell folks who might not have seen what has taken place with the FIA, the ACO, etc. partners in the 24 hours of Le Mans in terms of that entry list. Hit a little bit of a mini a reset button uh, to redo something in light of uh, this war. Yeah, um, it's fair to say the world is in a uh, is in a mood to ensure that uh, Vladimir Putin, his lieutenants, his backers, his enablers are left under no, uh, in no, uh, with no doubt that the their actions in Ukraine are entirely and completely unacceptable. Uh, short of actually directly challenging on a military basis, just about everything has been wheeled into the game. Uh, that led, uh, in the, the wake of the initial burst of economic sanctions, to the FIA coming out with what I think I, I'd say at this point, MP, initially, was not the statement we were expecting. It was somewhat Flaccid. short of... Flaccid. Yeah, Yeah, it wasn't great. Uh, but... They've been playing catch-up. They've been, I think, stirred into action by the actions of a number of national sporting bodies, including here in the UK, Germany, Belgium, I believe, um, which basically is going to make it impossible for um, uh, Russian-flagged licensed uh, athletes uh, to compete. Uh, That, of course, has had an effect on a number 
of uh, of pretty prominent names. Um, obviously, Mazapan in the uh, Formula One World Championship has, has been the one that's taking most of the headlines. But in our world, uh, there are a number of others. Uh, in terms of the drivers, Danny Kvyat, who was uh, due to make his um, FIWC debut next weekend. Um, the uh, G-Drive Racing Squad, backed, of course, by G-Drive, which is Gazprom, uh, owned, that's the Russian state-owned uh, energy company, with three entries um, f- uh, looked after by Algar Pro Racing and another entry um, looked after Euro International. So three LMP2 cars, one of which is an FIWC car, two LMS cars in P2 and one in P3, all of which were affected by the second phase of this, which was effectively asking those uh, Russian interests to sign a declaration uh, against a series of behaviours they would have to commit to, which effectively was them denouncing their nationality, um, or renouncing rather their nationality um, on the public, the world, on the world stage. And Graham, so, why, why don't we park there for just a sec? Yeah, that's a bizarre concept to me. And you are a proud son. Uh, of the UK, I'm a proud son of the United States, and our listeners are proud sons and daughters of wherever they're from. Not everyone is hyper hyper partisan in terms of their birthplace. Indeed. Not everyone has their their national flag emblazoned on their back and a giant tattoo. You know, again, I realize that some are more patriotic than others, but nonetheless, it does seem a bit of an odd thing to say hi we'll let you continue to play because this is sport. We're playing. This isn't a true life or death thing. This is a highly optional thing to do. We're going to let you continue to play. If you renounce your birthplace, etc., and compete under a, a neutral, uh, as a neutral entity or try and uh, compete under wherever you live. If you happen to live outside of your, your birth country, I know that we've seen this done in the Olympics, but it does seem very strange for that concept to be presented and for hashtag me personally, any athlete, any race car driver, entrant, whatever, to say, huh, okay, in the name of racing this year for a little while, I'm going to renounce where I'm from and effectively everything about that place that I'm from just to play sport. And then in theory, when the war's over, I'm going to go back to being that thing. It seems like a bizarre thing to do. And I got to admit, if uh, these were uh, drivers or whatever from my home country or yours, I wonder how folks would receive that. Oh, you're one of us when it's convenient, but when it's not... And folks won't let you play race car. You magically drop uh, your your citizenship to do that. That also makes me wonder about. I don't know if I should say the character of folks who might agree to do that. But it does. It that does doesn't sit well with me as a uh, acceptable workaround. But again, I'm not the folks being presented with yeah. this uh, question. I think there's a, there's a further point here as well, which is what we've seen and heard. Um, since all of this started, is the lack of freedoms that are around in some of the countries involved here. And in conversations with more than one person who's directly affected by this, this is not just in the world of WCLMS. There's a number of European GT um, efforts, including at least two, by the way, the British GT Championship that have got either dual uh, nationality drivers or Russian nationality drivers. And there are genuine concerns that should they sign such an undertaking, that there is an issue around their own personal safety. And that in itself uh, is something that needs to be taken into account when the emotions attached to this. Look, I'm in support of a message being sent, the most, most, the hardest message we possibly can. And if this is the way that's been determined to be, then fine, I will get behind it. I frankly just want people to be safe and live their own lives in the way that they choose to do so rather than what some bastard despot decides they're going to do. Um, But whatever, it then hands it over to 
the next phase, which is we've lost entries from those championships from significant players. But then you've got to the stage where there is damage left behind. And that fundamentally is not what sanctions are meant to be about. The mention uh, around sanctions is, look, we will take the pain that um, renouncing our links with you economically um, will engender, if that means, uh, you know, uh, rising gas prices and Blimey, I was, I, I've been out for the first time in a couple of days and spotted how much it is going to cost at our fuel stations around here. And it is eye-wateringly expensive right now and going north. Uh, but it's not supposed to terminally damage individual privately owned businesses um, of good standing in the wake of, uh, you know, a nationally or internationally imposed set of sanctions. And that was the concern. It's why I wrote what I wrote uh, over last weekend. And if you haven't read it, it's still there on Daily Sports Car around these sanctions. And was very pleasantly surprised, I have to tell you, MP, that uh, rather than rushing out a revised entry list for uh, the championships concerned, and in particular for the uh, for the Le Mans 24 Hours, that the ACO on Monday um, announced that they were... Uh, reopening entries for the Le Mans 24 Hours, also for the European Le Mans series, and in a rather more limited degree for a good reason uh, for the FI World Endurance Championship as well, for 48 hours, which expired, if I'm right, that would have been about three hours ago as we're um, as we're recording this show. Now that gave the opportunity for principally Algar Pro Racing, who were behind three of those entries to re-enter in their own name for Euro International, uh, who were behind the LMP3 branded entry to uh, have another crack and see whether or not they can put together a program. And for that matter, anybody else that uh, either wasn't lucky first time around or fancied uh, or had things coming together late to uh, see whether or not they could catch the eye of the ACO. I believe it's a mechanism to allow the Alga Pro Racing team to salvage their programs. And I think they are in a position where they can do that if they're allowed to do that. The key thing then is what impact does that then have on the uh, the 2022 Le Mans 24 hours list? Were yeah. they going to get two? They definitely would have got one because they're in the World Endurance Championship. Will they still get one? Might they get two of those three? But I'll, I'll say this. It's not often you can turn around and say, that is a sporting body in challenging circumstances, putting aside what would normally be the priority, which is get the entry list out, putting that aside and genuinely doing something that's in the interest of their customers and, if you like, the wider endurance racing family. So I'll say this to them when I see the, the individual uh, uh, gentleman, and it is all men, um, face-to-face, but well done, because actually that was the right decision to allow, uh, if you like, force majeure not to terminally impact an enterprise that you know involves dozens of people's livelihoods, let alone the uh, the investment uh, from uh, a pretty strong number um, of gentlemen drivers and professional drivers bringing sponsorship. So we should know. I, 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 you know typically, that almost certainly now I'm talking uh, to you on this show, they'll announce the uh, entry list while I'm in the sky somewhere. Uh, but uh, they'll announce the entry list in due course. I have little doubt, as long as the package can be brought together, we'll see Algo Pro Racing at Sebring, and I hope we do. Um, and I've little doubt we'll see them in European Le Mans series as well. And then it's all about what happens at Le Mans. Um, I just hope what we haven't seen is that door being opened to the Pandora's box of challenge from elsewhere um, about uh, you know who does and doesn't get an opportunity to race where um this is an extraordinary situation i hope it's over quicker than most of us expected to be um because you know it's bad don't you when you actually want to physically avoid watching the news because it genuinely is too distressing this is europe it's a european mainland european country in the 21st century and those bastards are killing children i cannot i have no words uh, i have no words for it and i have no sense of humor whatsoever with anybody looking to reduce the impact of what is the world's message to a appallingly manipulative regime um 
there's only one way out of this that has any credibility and that will come at the hands of Vladimir Putin's own people. And um, I'm, I'm glad in this sense that the, the part of the motorsport family that I'm the closest to has, I think, acted at this point with with visible honour and that's to be celebrated. Let me throw one thing out here and we're going to jump into the questions in just a second. I have thought about this uh, more than a few times since this aggression kicked off. I know that with the attacks in New York City and Washington, D.C., all surrounding 9-11, yeah. uh, great sympathy towards the USA by many countries, not all, but many countries when that happened uh, in 2001. We, for reasons that have been well documented, falsely uh, went after uh, Iraq and invaded and basically started a war of our own in retaliation. Uh, there was, again, a lot of international sympathy, but I have thought of late, and obviously that initial conflict grew and grew and seemingly we were, you know, in almost every, or I shouldn't say almost every, but uh, far too many uh, countries in the Middle East. Um, I just do think back to 21 years ago about how you know, at the time there were plenty of countries saying, hey, uh, yeah, you shouldn't do that. That That's not good, America. W again, we totally get that you've been attacked and want to fight, but uh, just deciding to go halfway around the world and pick on Iraq, that's really not cool. I just look at this with a bit of interest in how 20 plus years ago, my country decided to go and attack. I don't want to, I guess you could say unprovoked. We I'm mine. We, we, yeah, uh, yours as well. And in some others, but you know, we drummed up evidence that proven pretty quickly to be false and inaccurate didn't exactly back out i just i think about that and how at least at that time i don't recall any uh racing sanctioning bodies uh provincial uh sporting agencies uh the whatever governance in this country of motor racing or others saying american British, Canadian, Australian, whomever, uh, drivers, you cannot participate because this war uh, is something that you have provoked and has been proven within, again, somewhat short amount of time to be uh, baseless. Um, just odd to me where this aggression here in our world of motor racing has sparked swift response uh, top to bottom, it would appear, uh, and yet turn the clock back 20 years ago. And for reasons, again, maybe it's just a cultural shift. Maybe we're, quote, more connected today with everybody on social media and mm -hmm. being alert of all things the minute they happen and folks gathering and clustering to support things. That's become much more of a, of a daily occurrence uh, from what it would have been 20 years ago, pre-smartphones, pre-social media. Um, just I think about that and go, huh, um, interesting how... That might have been handled if the same thing happened today. Yeah. Again, I'm not I, I inviting think, a 9-11. I'm just saying if no, the indeed. U.S. decided to invade wherever for whatever uh, non-good reasons, I would have to imagine and think the same kind of, uh, hey, if you want to race, take those American flags off of everything or, uh, or denounce your country, renounce your country. I'd hope the same would be applied. Um, to us and everyone else if this is the new way of doing things. Yeah, I think that the final word on this one, MP, I think I would say this, which is don't fall into the trap that everybody with a Russian nationality is the enemy. That's not the case at all. In fact, they might may be the solution to the problem. Um, direct your ire and, if you like, your hate towards the ones making the decisions to do what they are doing, not to the ordinary Russian people. Um, it's it's a wacky old world, as we've seen throughout the world. You know, your country, my country, we've had our political problems and divisiveness. Um, this is just a very much more physical reminder of just where that can lead you. Um, should we move on? You are the official selector. Right, well. Categories. What do we 
categorizing let's, or something. Let's kick it off with Weck Elms, Elms and Aco, the A-Serial Rules Racing category. Um, that's going to be where we're going to see track action first, as I say, with the prologue test this weekend. Uh, so the cars and the teams are, for the most part, gathering. A couple of dropouts uh, ahead of the race meeting, but uh, for the most part, the full season grid will be assembled. So you, generally speaking here, MP, will throw my way. So we more than handled the opening questions <laughs> from Eric Harkrader, Lance Snyder, and Edgar Sanchez Brambia about uh, Russia, Ukraine, and how that will impact uh, WEX last 24 hours of Le Mans. So we're going to move right into Colin Bull uh, and a few others asking about Peugeot 9X8. Okay. Uh, Colin says, I have it in good authority that the French press are saying Peugeot will not take part in the WC this season at all. Wait until 2023. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts on this, Graham Goodwin? Well, that's not what they said. Uh, so the, the latest public statement from Peugeot is that um, they will not race at Le Mans and they won't race at Le Mans because they can't get the, the car ready for Spa. Why um, is that the case? Because the ACO have made it clear that they don't want a car in the top class debuting at Le Mans without them having had a chance to see it, assess the performance of it uh, in a previous race. So that would be Spa in May, not Le Mans in June. So what Peugeot said at the time was that they would debut uh, later, I think they said in the summer of 2022. Realistically, that means Monza. Uh, You would guess they will want to debut the car in mainland Europe rather than uh, a flyaway in uh, Japan uh, for blindingly obvious logistical reasons, if nothing else. So at the moment, their public statement is that they um, they will debut the car uh, later in the year. My steady guess would be that will be Monza, which, by the way, is also now a double header uh, two weekends. The ELMS having shifted from the Hungaro ring, not as many people have presumed to do with its physical uh, location uh, with a land border with Ukraine, but actually to do with uh, somewhat ironically noise considerations at uh, the Hungaro ring. Uh, that will shift to uh, Monza. So we'll have two LMS races this season in Italy with Imola back on the calendar. So the first of the two weekends, uh, LMS, the next weekend will be the FI World Endurance Championship. So a week in Milan it is for me and my guys. I love it. Let's see, where do we go next? Uh, Maddie McDonald. How you doing, Maddie? Says we're seeing lots of hypercar manufacturers wanting to compete uh, Mars lander worthy testing programs <laughs> before entering their first race makes sense given the multi year homologation period. Unfortunately, this means significant delays before we get to see that beautiful 9x8. Um, could the rules have been written differently? Maybe let a manufacturer compete, uh, complete their testing and find the right homologation package on track in their first year of racing, say without driving up the costs. Seems like if they're doing the testing, they're spending the money either way. Why not write the rules? This is really sharp, Maddie, uh, to encourage them to do it in front of the fans. Um, yeah. How's this? We've seen the photos of the new Peugeot prototype. We haven't seen it on track with other cars doing anything significant. And that's kind of the reason why folks enjoy <laughs> racing. So, what do you think? Uh, open a open a one year homologation period for cars like this to let them go race uh, before locking down what they is. It, it's tricky, isn't it? Because we've got this kind of rolling thunder, haven't we? Of, uh, of hypercar, uh, LMH and LMDH cars coming with Ferrari due to hit the track, Acura due to hit the track, BMW due to hit the track, Audi. Although there's some doubts now about the timing of that program emerging from German media reports, um, but. <sighs> I, I don't entirely disagree, but I absolutely understand why they've done it in this way. The process of, and in particular confidence in the process of balance of performance, will be the clincher for this new era. There's zero doubt about that. And it's it's not been without, you know, uh, metaphoric bloodletting, even in the current climate, um, Post collecting these questions, we've seen the hypercar balance performance for Sebring, which uh, shows a significant change for the Toyotas, which means in both dry and wet conditions, 
the speed at which they can deploy their hybrid boost uh, has been raised to 190 kilometers an hour rather than the, well, it's dependent on track condition, but 120 in the dry, 140, 160 in the wet. So it's a significant shift in the way in which they can deploy the power, uh, far less punch available from that uh, from that system, although it, it's still performing, if you like, power capped. Um, and that is likely to have been in response to uh, the, in my view, perfectly correct uh, approaches from Jim Glickenhouse post-season to say, this is supposed to be a balance of performance uh, series. We're within the uh, performance band, what are you going to do about the fact you've got a car there that often isn't? So I think I, I'm incredibly sympathetic. I, like you, am impatient to see, face you know, face uh, those cars in a paddock, see them out on track, see how they perform, see how they perform against each other. I wonder whether or not we're just sensibly here trying to keep everything under a degree of control, taking the hit, if you like, in this post-COVID period, and then pulling the wraps off what everybody hopes is going to be a well-formed, reliable, well-balanced, technically competent and contained grid and get real racing in depth come 2023. I think we always knew that 2022 was going to be the uh, a year where it was going to be tricky to um, to see these programs emerging as quickly as they might. That was without MP. Uh, what I think is emerging is one of the biggest challenges um, at this point, which is massive uncertainty about logistics, absolutely enormous uncertainty about logistics. And it's impacting absolutely everywhere. I can tell you, for instance, I've not written about it because I've not had absolute confirmation but story does tell of um, cars in double figures for the FIWEC having made their ship from Antwerp in Belgium uh, to be sent across to Florida for the Sebring race. But that ship got halfway across the Atlantic, was turned back around and docked in back in Antwerp just a few days ago. Now, that doesn't mean to say those cars won't make it. Those cars will now be air freighted. I believe that the ship has cost. Um, but it's an indication of just the challenges that are kicking around at the moment in the, the world of logistics, not just the challenges, but also the cost. And they will have been things that if you're looking at a program of the, the depth and complexity of something like a top-class sports car racing program, simply will not have been factored into the time skills and for that matter the budgets for those programs and it's going to have an impact um you know let's a bit of hashtag wait and see uh there are some good news stories kicking around there's more to come in terms of the good news stories but i think we've got to have some other challenging storylines to deal with as we move forward let's go to matthew license graham any ideas how the fia has addressed the bop issues in hypercar for this yep. year, so Glickenhaus will be really able to fight with Toyota. Would be sad to see another year of Toyota dominance with so much promise for next year. That's kind of an age old well, question, though, right? BOP, it, it, it is solve, I mean, B- uh, knock down a giant to help a minnow. Yeah, I mean, but it's BOP, and at the end of the day, everybody signs up to the same uh, to the same rule sets and you know you'll have heard i'm sure what i said post Le Mans, which is it is a bit concerning when you've got a car like the scg 007 which was operating within the window which ran basically without problems aside from the uh, nose change required for the hit on the rear of the, on the totas uh, on the very first lap thereafter ran without problems ran at reasonable speeds at the lead of the two cars the other one recovering back up um through the LMP2 field late in the race, but could do no better than fourth and fifth, despite spending significantly less time in the pits than either the Toyotas, or for that matter, the Alpine. Um, That's not what BOP is supposed to do. It's supposed to reward being within the performance window and reliability. Uh, It is a a sport which should be rewarding you for, for staying out of the pits other than for your routine stops. So 
the the answer uh, from Jim Glickenhouse about that, when obviously asked to return for a full season, was in which case, okay, what are you going to do about the clear performance disparity, particularly in qualifying trim, um, between our cars and the Toyota? And he came away from that debate feeling uh, that he'd been listened to and there would be a response. We've seen some changes to his car, so there's going to be breaking by wire for the SCGs uh, this year, which was allowed without there being one of the jokers because that is seen to being effectively a safety-related system. We've seen Toyota employ their first joke with a change in the wheel size for the GR, the Groots, um, which, by the way, subsequently to stay within the performance windows meant some significant uh, bodywork changes to the rear wing end plates and the dorsal fin. Um, and yes, now we've also seen this change in the rule to do with the speed at which they can deploy their hybrid boost. And we'll see. We will see. Going to have the first opportunity for a US audience to. Uh, see the hypercars in uh, in action uh, this this uh, not well this weekend. I'm, I'm trying to think whether or not fans are allowed in for the prologue, but if they're not, then certainly next weekend, the Friday race uh, for them, and and there'll be you know as always a well-informed uh, US fan base who have been used to seeing uh, the LMP1 cars both at Cota uh, and I was happy to see you know, at Sebring for the very first of the Super Sebring races, and let's see whether or not this floats their boat. Because what you can be looking at is, broadly speaking, the kind of performance levels that are coming to IMSA as well when the LMDH cars come on stream too. Not trying to do the uh, speaking down of the underdogs, because I always love the underdogs more than the overdogs. But there is that thing of how much money... Uh, oh, much testing, whether it's on track or virtual. What's the vast disparity in resources between a Toyota Gazoo racing and its hypercar versus a SEG uh, Scuderia Cameron Glickenhaus and what they can do with theirs? And so, again, I always hope that we get great performances out of the underdogs, but BOP... BOP is just a really strange place to try and make the have-nots to become the haves. And again, that's no disrespect or saying that uh, the, the Glickenhaus team aren't doing amazing work. They don't have a great car. I'm not saying any of those things. Just saying you look at the two different organizations and you go, whoa, can folks going tappity-tap into spreadsheets saying little more of this, little less of that with two very disparate teams and vehicles magically create parity that in the real world uh, does not exist. So, yeah, um, just a weird thing to lean on, Graham, year after year, series after series. Um, hope springs eternal. All right, brother, we are, where are we at? A little more than a half an hour in. Okay. Why don't we keep cranking here with some WEC, uh, Aslam, Elms, and Aco? Your bailiwick, as my father would have said back <laughs> in the day. Uh, two more here in your section. Kevin McCormick. Why are LMP3 cars allowed to have side skirts to the ground between the wheels in P2 and LMH? LMDH do not. Yeah, Goodwin, answer um, us. I don't think it's side skirts implies they go to the ground. Uh, I think we're talking bodywork here, aren't we? Yeah. Not side skirts. There's no skirts on LMP3. I think it's just that's the way. But bear in mind the the difference in the uh, what's underneath that bodywork. So for an LMP2 car, an LMP, an LMDH car, you're talking about a effectively a sort of teardrop-shaped carbon monocoque. Uh, so it's a full carbon structure that does not extend to the whole width of the car. Correct. Whereas LMP3, it is a wider carbon tub with a steel roll hoop. I wonder if it's a good question, but I wonder if that's the 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 uh, the meat and two veg, if you like, of the of the answer here. It's is it is a physically wider carbon structure. I suspect that to be the case. We're going to close 
with our man who puts together the questions for us, the awesome Daniel Summers Gill. And Daniel Summers Gill, you should follow him, by the way, at LMDH. It's LMD Husky 2023 <laughs> on Twitter. Um, this is the most Daniel Summers Gill question possible. Any idea, Graham, when the entry list for the Mission Lamar Cup? will be released and how many gt3 cars are you aware of that will be entering this season uh, right so the answer is i'm 99 certain that that has been delayed because of the ongoing knock-on effects of the uh, russian question and the le mans 24 hours list it is pretty imminent i wouldn't be remotely surprised if that came while we're away uh, in sebring this weekend what can i say um couple of things uh, i know that it's at least one of the cars that has been previously uh, indicated would be on that list may not be i'm very aware that there is a big surprise coming in the gt class for because gt let's uh, mission le mans cup i should make clear by the way to those that don't know is a support race for the european le mans series and is a combined grid of gt3 and lmp3 cars and traditionally, it should be said, for most of the races, the GT3 cars are a much smaller number. Um, but the surprise that will be coming is there is an entry which will feature three examples of uh, a single GT3 make that perhaps you're not expecting in the Michelin Le Mans Cup. I'll say no more than that. I'm slightly sworn to secrecy on this one. Uh, I'm looking forward to uh, bringing those races to audiences again this year. Um, Do we have the world's are, greatest Mission Le Mans Cup insider uh, co-hosting the show right now? <laughs> it's me, and it's going to—it's me, and it's Johnny Palmer, and it's—it's uh, it's all good stuff. But um, the other thing—if people haven't noticed it, by the way—there will be a uh, a change for the Mission Le Mans Cup this year in that there won't be two-hour races anymore. They will be one hour and fifty minutes. Uh, this is the uh, the rather blunt force mechanism that's been used to offset the impact of the uh, the rather foreseeable miscalculation about fuel economy. So it's cutting out that second fuel stop that caused so many uh, strategic problems and certainly issues for us in the booth as well. But it'll be an hour and fifty minutes for those races this year, rather than two hours. But um, a little bit more patience, I'm afraid, required, Daniel. I'm expecting it to be a very healthy grid for the Michelin Le Mans Cup uh, in LMP3 again. I'm not honestly certain what we're going to see overall for the GT3 uh, numbers, but I do know uh, that information has reached me that there is one very big surprise coming, and I think that's going to put smiles on faces. The switch them Pirelli tires. Is that the big shift <laughs> for the Michelin? No, okay. Graham Goodwin, where do we go next in the 20-ish minutes we have left for this episode before we, we need to fire you towards an airport? To, that's right. We're, of course, going to go to the other parts of the Super Supreme Weekend, and that is the MSW Tech Sports Car Championship and its supporting races. And this is the point at which I start to fling things your way. We're going to kick it off with... Luke Filipponi and also Christopher Alphaby. Um, and uh, they're both asking around stories around Andretti Autosports, looking to expand, of course, into a Formula One. And maybe, says Luke, prototypes with Renault and Alpine. I've seen the, uh, the interview that uh, Mario Andretti gave on that subject, uh, MP, um, where Mario did say that Michael had been in touch with Alpine presumably running at LMTH. Yeah. Um, one thing I would add, by the way, is I don't think I've heard a public statement from Andretti that that was necessarily IMSA. But because that would, that would round out, wouldn't it, this question as to whether or not Alpine, uh, the runner brand that does not at the moment have sales in the USA, would be able to compete in the MS Weather Tech Sports Car Championship. I don't know. That's just one point. I've not written the story because it wasn't my initial uh, scoop. Uh, but I don't know what you know, what you've heard. I'm sure you, uh, Mario rings you every – it's usually every Tuesday and Wednesday, isn't it, he calls? Standing standing phone call. Yeah. Uh, no joke when I'm done – when we're done here, I'm uh, due to ring one person – 
on one topic. And then the next call after that is to Michael Andretti uh, for a little bit of uh, actually a, a, a full flotilla of racing series questions. So <laughs> among them, provided he takes my call because he knows what I'm calling about, um, that sometimes doesn't happen when folks know you're calling to ask things they don't yeah. want to talk about. Yeah. Uh, but provided he answers, I'll see if I can get anything more out of him on the sporty car side. When we spoke last in depth two-ish weeks ago, maybe two and a half, three weeks, uh, he did mention that they were still pressing ahead on trying to find a manufacturer partner to make a endurance racing return, prototype return. Did not give any specifics on where, uh, so you're, you're correct on that. Um, but yeah, we'll see if and what I can get out of him and if he will speak on that subject at all. For what I have read, uh, I actually shouldn't say read, for what I was told about the Renault side from Racers, Formula One, reporter Chris Medland, uh, whenever this was a month ago, when the whole Michael F1 thing, uh, Andretti Global thing was starting to kick off, and uh, Chris Medlin mentioned uh, Renault being the brand uh, that they would go with, um, I did think about the Renault-Alpine angle, in sporty cars and wonder if this was a no fallback, I would say Graham, but you know, F1's a big shot. F1's a yep. big shot to try and take. Will that happen? Can't say if there is a big desire by Andretti, which is already uh, has a base in the UK for its formula E program, um, wanting to look at a bigger base to run this potential F1 program out of in the UK. If the F1 side does not happen, well, Michael does seem intent on growing his ownership footprint even more. So I did wonder, and again, I'll ask him, hey, where does this land on your, your range of interests? And if one for whatever, if F1, for whatever reason, does not pan out, uh, would you see a large uh, WEC program, maybe with a little bit of sprinkling of IMSA, whatever? Would you see that as maybe a an acceptable... Um, second, uh, plan B. So we'll see. But that is what stood out. Huh. If no F1, this could actually be not a bad thing to uh, to do in its place. Yeah, interesting one. Uh, one that uh, I think is the second week for this one. I don't think we got to it last time. James Bether says, will VP Racing continue to supply fuel for the IMSA 2023 and beyond? And says, shout out to Racer for their YouTube streaming of the MX5 Cup races from St. Pete. MX5 Cup races, all kinds of amazing things to watch. <laughs> I don't know about specifics with VP Fuel, James. I, I don't know of there being a negotiation for another fuel vendor to step in. Uh, so until I hear otherwise, I would have to assume so. On a, on I think, another I think G Drive are definitely out, by the way. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm just going to leave that right there. I don't want any drone strikes. Um <laughs> I, I don't know how hot of a market that is right now, uh, James. I, I don't know with the, quote, mounting energy crisis, fuel prices raising here and lots of other places. Uh, with VP being a specialized racing fuel vendor, I would think they'd be in a pretty happy place to keep doing what they're doing. If we were talking about a major domestic or international uh, brand BP or Chevron or shell or something like that. I could see where that might actually be a conversation. They might want to have, Hey, you know what? Uh, granted in theory, they should be making lots of money right now, but, uh, promotionally, I know, uh, energy companies slash gas companies aren't exactly the most loved things in the world right now. So could there be a bit of sensitivity to that? Hey, I don't know if we want to be marketing this any more than we have to that we exist and we supply fuel um maybe that would be a conversation james but i wouldn't think a specialized racing fuel vendor like vp would be uh, trying to get out nor do i think there'd be other any other major gas companies trying to get in just because it's not exactly a giant area that's going to drive massive sales uh, at the your average fuel pump uh if it was nascar if it was formula one maybe but IMSA, uh, I think it might be too small for that to have any real value. Let's move on. Uh, who's next? Joshua Johnson. Would IMSA 
Uh, or is IMSA considering pulling P2 out of the class structure to apply P2 driver requirements to LMP3 with the limited supply outlook of the new P2 chassis and a lower cost of entry? Mm. I've Um, not heard that. No. I think we could actually see the opposite take place here in Mm. that what I continue to hear with where IMSA is going with its GTP class and GTP cars, damn it, not LMDH. Uh, Serious questions as to whether any true privateers will have a, uh, a place in GTP. Can we get a car? Uh, what's it going to cost? What, 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 what? I do expect there to be some, quote, customer cars, uh, factory-affiliated efforts. But true high, we're just an independent team that want to buy a GTP car and run it. Uh, the budget to do so, from what I keep hearing, is beyond the the comfort level or the ability mm-hmm. for your average privateer team to make happen. So of the pros and cons, if we're forecasting forward a little bit, Graham, with the uh, GTP class here, I think it's going to be more factory than we have seen in quite some time. Uh, that should, in theory, diminish the place for privateers and for those like say a JDC Miller Motorsports that want to stay in the top tier. But again, we'll see who knows what they may or may not be able to make happen. Would they want to truly only have LMP three as an option? Absolutely not. Uh, so I think the, the knock on effect here could be if IMSA says, look, we do have new P2 models coming that will be available in whatever couple of years, but we're going to have a bit of a freeze and allow the previous generation LMP2 cars to have extended years of eligibility. Um, I think there might be a decent growth in P2 next year and beyond for that simple reason. Hey, you might not be able to find a home or stay in GTP. So P2 might end up being the benefactor of that with more entries which would then make getting rid of the class no bueno. Okay. So what's uh, next in the order here? Uh, Kevin McCormick says, any chance we'll see the Porsche LMDH on display at Sebring? Not that I'm aware of. It'd be really cool though, but no, um, I think that car will be busy, hopefully doing testing. I don't know exactly where, but somewhere. Uh, I should also mention, I spent, I think, 20 minutes, maybe a half hour, I don't remember the exact length, on the good old tell-o-phone late last week with Porsche factory driver Felipe Nazar speaking specifically about LMDH slash GTP, and so I need to post that here as one of them good old podcasts, Graham Goodwin, and of course, they weren't exactly letting him spill the beans on anything that they hadn't spoken about before, but it was just interesting to get a feel from Felipe about joining the the biggest racing program he's ever been a part of with team Penske and Porsche being a factory driver there, the testing and development side, which is a big part of his skill set, And, uh, some of the, some insights about driving, (coughs) excuse me, driving the car and giving us some comparisons to its performance related to uh, the DPIs that we see today. So uh, I need to get that up and posted today or tomorrow just for folks to hear good old Felipe uh, talk about that kind of stuff. But uh, let me look back here real quick and uh, find the question because I've completely forgotten what it was. But hey. Oh, so the, the question was... Um, seeing the Porsche on display. Yes, um, apologies. I don't know exactly where the the primary car they're using for testing is is going to be during Sebring, but I would think we would see it at Le Mans um, yeah. more than anywhere else if it was going to be put on global display simply because that's where the biggest eyeballs would be, and so that's where I would tell them to do it. 
Okay, I'm going to uh, bu uh, bundle the next questions together here. Marty Lyson says, is there any announcement set for Sebring of LMDH programmes 2024? Seems to like we're getting towards the cutoff for the brilliant time. And Brian Dawkins says, he keeps hearing the phrase golden era of sports car racing being tossed about and referenced the upcoming LMDH hypercar GTP uh, era. Is the number of factory entrants enough to make it a golden era? Hashtag me personally says, he doesn't think it does. Organisers have placed too much emphasis on manufacturing close racing, extensive BOP, ever-growing competition regulations, says have taken away many interesting aspects of the sport. With no innovation, strategy stifled, a hero drive is dead. The last bit I fundamentally disagree with. Formula for winning leans too much towards simply not making mistakes. What say you, MP and GG? On the first point, are we going to see any announcements for 2024? I don't believe we're going to have any major announcements for 2024 if we're talking LMDH or GTP at Sebring. Okay. Uh, I've heard of when we might after Sebring, and yep. it makes me smile. So not Good. Sebring, but yeah, keep your ears out. Um, Brian, on the golden era, the potential's there. I mean, I we can't christen something before it's happened. Uh, mm -hmm. But if we're talking about on the IMSA side and what we're opening with, we have Acura, BMW, Cadillac, and Porsche. Am I forgetting any other brands that are meant to kick off in 23? So, so, so say again. So I was, uh, well, in, in IMSA. Acura, got, BMW, yes. Cadillac, yes. Porsche. Have I forgotten Correct. any? Okay. No. Uh, so we have four major auto manufacturers jumping in with new prototypes. If I think back to the last true American golden era, of endurance sports car racing with prototypes that would have been 2005-ish through 2008 American Le Mans series where we had Audi versus Acura versus Porsche. Mazda was there, but not really a significant challenger. But we did have those three pillars that beat the heck out of each other and made amazing racing. Go back to my beloved IMSA GTP days, uh, late, mid to late eighties, very early nineties, 1990 again, might be the greatest year of all. If we're talking American prototype racing, what did we have? We had Nissan versus Jaguar versus Toyota. <clears throat> there was some Chevy intrepid thrown in there. Um, Toyota really kicked off, uh, 91 or so with a new Eagle Mark three design. And there were some other brands that came in and out. There were some that preceded uh, that era. But by and large, Toyota, Jag, Nissan, those were kind of sort of the three doing it, holding, holding the line, putting in the work, making things amazing. There were some privateers, some great spices and such that were there. Um, and again, we had Chevy with the Intrepid there for a little bit, but it was three to four manufacturers that made for some great racing. So just saying numerically, uh, there's certainly a potential. Graham, and we can look at the DPI era, mm -hmm. and we had four at its peak. The Nissan certainly did some pretty big things. The Extreme Speed Motorsports privateer-funded effort that uh, went forth, they did some big things with that car. Uh, weren't really championship challengers, but for the most part, for most of this era, we've had three with Mazda, which came on strong towards the end before pulling out Acura, which came in second year of the, uh, DPI formula in Cadillac, which has really been the mainstay throughout it. So we've seen some pretty epic stuff with two to three solid brands. I'm feeling okay, Brian, about what this could be. Mm -hmm. Your your overarching point, though, of like, hey, things are so tightly regulated and, you know, individuality is uh, not so much of a thing. True. Again, BOP and, and tight, tight regulations do create cars that uh, do not run more than a tenth or two uh, off of one another. We look back in time, obviously. Uh, the P1 and P2 battles were amazing in the LMS. Very different cars made their speeds very differently had strengths, some at certain circuits had strengths, where others uh, they didn't. So a lot of back and forth there. And then back in the GTP days, I mean, you could have 
half a second, one, two seconds or more between the various hotly competing manufacturers. So much more of a wide open thing back then, but I don't know. Um, I hope truly that some of the upcoming GTP manufactured models that we see debut next year, Graham, I hope mm-hmm. that some get some things very wrong and some get some things very right so that they aren't all within a millisecond of each other. And there is some actual disparity and adversity and they have to fight to make compelling races and compelling speed. So, um, I'd love to see that. That, that would be a little bit of a, uh, a fly in the ointment per se. Uh, where do we go, Graham Goodwin, with uh, the last little bit of the show? Should we jump to another category? Well, we've got, I think what we do here is we've got uh, ooh, something over half a dozen questions amongst our head general and fun. Why don't we pick a couple each in the last couple of minutes? I will throw, I will hurl like an angry monkey at the zoo. <laughs> <laughs> I will hurl some uh, some goopy stuff at you here. Uh, let's see. Where do we go? I can, I'll tell you what, I'm going to grab one while you're looking. You, you, uh, Sean Crockett says, are there any songs that immediately make you think of a particular race or track? His or other new radicals, you get what you give, which is all over Radio Le Mans, the 1999 Le Mans, or the Dandy Warhols, Bohemian Like You, as it was the theme music for the early 2000s Le Mans computer game. I'm going to go for one that's a bit left field. It's going to be the 2015, I think it was then the Pirelli World Challenge, at, uh, and I think it was Long Beach. I'm going to go for Yakety Sacks, which is, of course, the Benny Hill theme tune, because that race was insane uh, in terms of both the behavior uh, of on track and then the behavior of the organizers off track. Uh, was it half of the drivers? I think were penalised, lost points, got yeah. fines. Um, I, I got a figure in mind. It was something over sixty thousand dollars in fines um, came from that race. Um, so it was the most bizarrely ill-tempered pre, during, and post uh, race that I can remember. And uh, for the carnage, I can think nothing better than the Benny Hill thing tune. Uh, I'm not going to top that answer. So, uh, you win and there you go. Let's see. Why don't I, uh, let's go to Brian Dawkins. We haven't had this question Mm -hmm. in a little while. He says, I've been watching a lot of older racing recently on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Came to be a fan of sports car racing with speed vision later in life. Good on you. He says, if you could go back in time, Graham, and cover any single season of sports car racing in any series, in any era that predates the time you became a journo list, what year would it be? And for fun. Uh, could even be before you were born. It's a good question. Do well, you go for something that's kind of 60s and... There know, was no uh, racing before you were born. So uh, <laughs> that's why, I mean, I lo- horse racing uh, uh, maybe, Brian. There's, there's there's an element of the Ford versus Ferrari era where it was just so different at the big racetracks that that would be worth seeing. But for me, I do feel as if I missed out on the GTP, the Group C days, and... I think probably something like the 1988 season. And, you know, after years of Porsche dominance and Jaguar coming back at Le Mans, that would have been, I think, something to see. Uh, So I think something like 1988, if not, maybe something like 1968, 69, uh, with all that fun stuff going on as well. But they're the two that, that, that kind of, yeah, just warm the juices in terms of my imagination about uh, years past, uh, hopefully those two would be uh, acceptable if you're listening. Anybody up there, if you can change, if you could turn back time, as I think Belinda Carlisle once said. No, that's a share song, I think, oh, isn't it? That's a yeah, it C? Is. Graham okay, Goodwin, is, I was just drawing you out. Drawing you C. out there, you see. Another there you song. If Nailed I turn it. back time. Oh, Nailed yeah. It, you see? There oh, you go. boy. Marshall uh, Pruitt, share fan. You with with uh, yeah your ass cheeks hanging out and big hair uh, <laughs> redoing that video. How do we make that happen, Graham Goodwin? Um, Brian, maybe we'll close the show with this, Graham. I, I would say, having been there, fortunate to be there for a decent amount of the GTP era, I would love to go back. I mean, granted, there's a million things uh, I would love to go back and see sports car eras and whatnot. But I think the the most magnanimous one that I read about, hear about, know about would be 
late eh, late 60s early 70s can-am porsche 9730s and chaparral j2s and uh or two j's or uh just run down mclaren m8s the the um bruce and denny show and mario andretti and dan gurney and run down the list of all the legendary drivers teams uh vehicles that uh just true time travel eternally giving the middle finger to bop like if there was ever a go f yourself bop class that existed it was can-am where you go okay so we're gonna do twin turbo flat 12 (laughs) porsche motors and we're gonna make 1500 horsepower and have tires as wide as the track okay let's do that oh and we've got big wings on the back but we don't fully understand aerodynamics and the front of the car is creating an immense amount of lift so you basically have wheelie popping dragsters but you're road racing um v8 motors naturally aspirated of a trillion cubic inches just insane stuff make whatever you want the shadows right i mean come on some of these are like cartoon cars where you go what that that's that's legal yes like truly pretty much whatever you want to do do it and talk about revered decades you know 50 plus years later uh some of the cars from the can-am's finest era are some of the most expensive vintage racing cars you can buy because they were so much from outer space and so free and so amazing that i I would suggest that almost every form of of sports prototype racing since then has paled in comparison so having been fortunate to see many of these cars run in vintage events some of them being driven uh, at some of those events by some very wicked drivers uh you get to see why these cars packed the house graham thrilled people folks who still talk about seeing them live again 50 plus years later the kind of impact that these cars made on racing and the kind of mind-blowing things they did that inspired folks and fans and you name it uh, afterwards i'd love to be there for just a single race to watch uh you know 70 71 72 68 whatever give me one race it'd be amazing it's a brilliant uh, answer uh, i think we're done aren't we uh, take us home got, brother man got things to do i've got things to do and uh, this has just been one of them um thanks very much indeed uh marshall pruitt for your time this evening and thanks of as always to cooper ties the justice brothers and to torontomotorsports.com for their continued backing of Marshall Pruitt's podcast output. This has been the Week in Sports Cars. Uh, Next week, I'll be at Sebring for Super Sebring, and we'll bring you some programming from there. Should we tell them about what we're thinking about doing during the race? I think we probably should. We'll trail it a little bit. Uh, For those who've seen or give a fart, uh, about a week and a half, two weeks ago, uh, started doing a Twitter Spaces show, which I've uh, dubbed hashtag Racing Family, so the Racing Family Show been doing a standing monday show with my co-host uh regular co-host chris wheeler mostly about indycar if not exclusively about indycar so far but we're going to certainly be adding some more uh content have had my friend chris medlin as i mentioned racers f1 reporter on did a little bit of f1 we'll be doing some sporty car stuff coming up here soon mm-hmm. uh graham will probably do a racing family show from the track next week when you're there i won't uh, I'll be off to cover the Texas IndyCar race, but uh, you and I will probably do something live-ish there uh, yep. where y'all can listen in and take part on good old Twitter live audio show. But we're thinking of doing the hashtag racing family Twitter spaces, 12 hours of Sebring yep. watch party. And I won't be able to participate in all of it because uh, we have practices and qualifying at Texas on Saturday while the race is going on, but I should be able to launch the show and gr- make you the co-host, Graham, which would then allow yep. you to let people speak and 
take that privilege away if they don't deserve it. Um, <laughs> but do kind of a 12 hour watch audio watch party. We're going to wait. I think we'll probably give it a bit of a track, a crack. Um, the, yeah, I think it's going to be a very interesting one indeed. Uh, I'm hearing, by the way, as we're recording this, we're about to get the final uh, Sebring entry um, in just a few minutes' time. So that will confirm what's happened with uh, the, the G-Drive Racing Algar Pro uh, outturn. Lots of things up in the air. There's going to be a lot of storylines coming. I'm watching them come in uh, into my inbox as I speak, including uh, confirmation now of a pause in the Audi LMDH program. So there'll be a lot more of that, I'm sure, uh, coming out from the Sebring 10 days uh, in terms of what that means in reality for that program and beyond. Uh, We'll bring you all of that next week. But uh, more details, keep an eye on, uh, it's at Marshall Pruitt, isn't it? And at DSC Editor on Twitter for more details of that uh, programming. Um, That could be a brave new adventure. Uh, we'll we'll uh, hashtag wait and see whether or not the Sebring uh, Wi-Fi uh, lives up to the promise and uh, we can actually run that from the, the, the new press centre there for us this year not a tent this year thank God uh, but for now that's been us you've been you thanks again to Daniel Summerskill for his efforts in putting the questions together we will see you next week <laughs>